Mark chapter 9. Continue our study here in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples at this point are discouraged. They're not sure what exactly is going on. They, they thought this friend was the promised Messiah and that as they expected, that He would come to rule and reign while they were there. And that He would exalt the Jews and, and remove them from the suppression and the tyranny of these Romans that were, were over them. He had uh, Jesus, this Jesus, this, this Messiah, had taught many great things. He had taught like no one else they had ever heard. He had performed great miracles. How could He not be of God? And yet, the kingdom had not come. It, it, it did not happen as the disciples had, expect, had expected it to. And in fact, it would not come in their lifetime. Jesus, for the first time in chapter 8, verses 31 and following, revealed to them that He would suffer. That although He was the Messiah, He would suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. But after He died, He would raise from the dead. That He would rise from the dead and He would, he would have conquered death. But the disciples could not understand this. In fact, Peter, at that time, we looked at, at that situation when Jesus told them that He would in fact die. Peter rebuked Him. Jesus, this cannot be. Don't you understand who You are? You're the Messiah. This can't happen. And Jesus turned and rebuked Peter. said, Peter, get behind Me. Satan, you are talking as if you're speaking on the authority of Satan himself because I am going to the cross. I am going to die. This is what has been predicted in the Old Testament. This is what my Father has given Me to do. And then last time we looked at the fact that, that not only would Jesus suffer and die, but they would also be persecuted for being associated with Jesus Christ. That they would have to take up their cross and follow Him. Not exactly the kind of king they were looking for. Not exactly the kind of Messiah they had expected. They wanted one who would come in power. And now He's telling us that instead of wielding His authority... He's going to suffer? And that we're going to suffer too? I mean, is that the kind of king we were looking for? What kind of kingdom is that? Kings don't suffer. They, they do what they want to do. They, 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 they rule in a way that is best for, for them and the people. And so the disciples are understandably confused and frustrated and perhaps even angry. So Jesus uses this next event that we're going to see today to encourage three of His disciples and to teach them about who He is and what would happen to Him in the kingdom. Let's read about it beginning in verse 2 of Mark chapter 9. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you... I'm sorry, verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, 
And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. If it wasn't clear to Peter, James, and John before, it is now. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's not an ordinary person. He is God in human flesh. While they still don't understand all the implications of this, as you see from their questioning of Jesus on the way down the mountain, they get a, a, a further glimpse into this person, this man, Jesus, the Messiah. And today we're going to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. In verses 2 and 3, we see that Jesus is glorious. That Jesus is great in glory. Peter, James, and John are three of the most talked about disciples in the Gospels. This is Jesus' inner core. He uses these men to teach them things that, that He doesn't teach to other disciples. Apparently, these men were more mature spiritually than the others. Perhaps it was just simply that Jesus wanted to explain to these men uh, certain things. And he does this in other occasions where he takes these three men aside, uh, exclusive to the rest of the, the, the group. You see this in chapter 14, verse 33, when Jesus goes to the mountain to pray. He takes with him Peter, James, and John. So there's a special connection that he had with these three men. And it tells us in verse 2 that Jesus brought them up on a high mountain. This high mountain was probably Mount Hermon because they are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Jesus is teaching the disciples several things. He's trying to get to an ex, uh, a secluded place so that He can teach the disciples about what's going to happen to them. And He does this away from all the crowds. So now He takes them up onto this mountain, just the three of them. And the Scriptures tell us in verse 3, or at the end of verse 2, that He was transfigured before them. What does this mean? That Jesus was transfigured? Well, we do know that it has to do with light. Notice verse 3. This transfiguration has to do with light. And His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. 
It has to do with light. The gospel writers uh, do their best to record this event. I mean, this must have been a, a spectacular sight. And so Mark and, and Matthew and Luke also record the same event, and they do their best to record what happens here. From the perspective of a human, what was going on? And the text tells us that, that this transfiguration has to do with some sort of light, that Jesus show, had shown them some sort of light that came out from within. In fact, it tells us that, that his, he, he was so white that it even whitened his garments to the point where, where, where no launderer could ever make him that light. Now, light is often associated with the, the visible presence of God. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21, the last book in your Bible, second to last chapter, Revelation 21. You remember when the, the children of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness, how God led them by day with a cloud? That was a sign of His presence. And in the evening, when it was dark, He led them by a pillar of fire. See, light. This was a symbol of God's presence. Here in Revelation chapter 21, we see that in heaven, this is the way that it will be as well. That, that God's presence will be indicated by this light that comes from His glory. This is John, the, the, the one who wrote the Gospels. He's also recording this, this uh, vision of what's going to happen. Look at verse 22. John records, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in heaven, in this new Jerusalem, there will be no need for light. There will be no need for the sun, I should say. There will be no need for the moon to light us by night. Because the glory of God is going to be enough light to give us so that we can see what is going on, so that we can uh, have illumination at that time. And that's a symbol of, of, what, uh, of the fact that God is there. That this light is a symbol that God is there and that He has great glory. That, that if someone were to see God and His glory, they would see this great light. And that's how the Scriptures often talk about it. So when we look in Mark chapter 9 about this transfiguration, that Jesus shows what is within, this, this light, this glory that's coming from Him, that it is a great light, like something they had never seen before. So it has to do with light. It also has to do with glory, that, that He is showing something of His glory. Notice how Jesus prophesied what would happen in chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus had predicted to the disciples that He said, yes, you will suffer. There's, there is a great possibility that you will suffer. But, but some of you some of you will see the greatness of the kingdom of God, the glory of the kingdom of God before you die, before you taste death. And what he's talking about is these three disciples. He's talking about, I'm going to take you up to this mountain and you're going to see the greatness of the kingdom of God, the glory of God in a way that no one has seen before. 
Now, the word translated transfigured in verse 2 literally means a change in form. Or it means to be transformed. So to be transfigured means to be transformed in some way. It's the word that we get, our word, metamorphosis. And you know how a metamorphosis works, the process uh, works. The most common word uh, metamorphosis that we understand is with regard to how a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. That there's a transformation taking place there. That within this caterpillar is the vestige of something greater, of, of something different than what is seen. You look at this the, this tiny little creature and, and you don't think beauty and, and great uh, ability to fly or anything like that, but within this caterpillar is that form. And so it means that Jesus is greater than what, than what people view Him as. They view Him as a normal, ordinary person that has some kind of special gift. But now Jesus is showing something of His glory, something of His greatness to the disciples. Now, this is different than what Moses had seen. Moses saw a glimpse of the glory of God in Exodus chapter 24. But Moses was different because he reflected God's glory. You remember what happened when Moses came down from the mountain? People noticed that he was still glowing, that his face was still glowing, shining from the glory that he had seen. But see, the difference is that Moses reflected God's glory, but Jesus had the glory from within him because he is, he is God himself. He is, he is God in human form. Jesus radiated this glory from the inside. Now, there's two reasons why this event, this transfiguration is important. First of all, it's an encouragement to the three disciples who were confused about what, what was going on. Remember, they're, they're thinking, what, what could this possibly mean? If He's the Messiah, why is He not coming in power and coming to reign now? Why is He not sitting on the throne and the disciples were discouraged. So the, the one reason this event is important is it gives encouragement to these disciples who were confused and frustrated and discouraged. And then secondly, it is a revelation of Christ's hidden glory. And the point that Jesus is making is that, look, okay, I am the Messiah and I will come in glory. But because I came now and I was rejected, I will come again. There will be a time when I come again in power and I will reign as king, but not right now. So what I'm going to do for you, disciples, is I'm going to reveal to you a little bit of who I am. That I am God. And there is none like Me. That God, that Jesus is the King of kings. They were starting to see this now. That He was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and that as Philippians 2 says, that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. They will bow the knee to Jesus because He is the King. And the disciples were able to see a glimpse of this. Jesus is glorious. Secondly, Jesus is superior to the prophets, verses 4-6. through six. Notice what happens in verse 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, what is so special about 
Moses and Elijah? Why these two men? Why not David and Solomon or Adam and Noah or some other people? Why, why Moses and Elijah? Well, I believe Elijah was, if you remember what Elijah did while he was here, he was a prophet. So he was probably symbolic of all of the prophets. And then Moses was symbolic of the law. You remember the, the first five books of the Bible are called the books of the law or the, uh, the Torah, um, the Pentateuch, the, the books of the law. These are the books that were written by Moses. And so the, the, the person in that day understood the Bible to be separated into two parts. Okay? We, we separate ours into the Old Testament and the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. All they had was the Old Testament. And so they understood the, the, the law and the prophets. In fact, we have instances where, where it's referred to. The whole Scriptures are referred to as the law and the prophets. And they lump all of those books into those two main categories. And so probably what's happening here is that Moses and Elijah come down as a representation of those two parts of the Bible, of God's former revelation. How He had told people about Himself, the Law and the Prophets. And they come as representatives of what God had previously said. <clears throat> and in Luke chapter 9, we find out what they were talking about. At the end of verse 4, it says that they were talking with Jesus. Luke 9.31 tells us that they were talking about His coming death. And so if the disciples were able to overhear what they were talking about, which they probably were standing right there, it probably confirmed for them that, you know, Jesus said He was going to die, so if these guys are talking about it, these great men of history are talking about it, then it must be true. If it was acceptable for these Old Testament saints, then how can we disagree with what Jesus had said? Notice Peter's statement in verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he, Peter, did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. We see Peter's fearful response. Now, verse 6 tells us that Peter was talking uh, in a fearful way. He didn't know what to answer. He wasn't sure what was going on there. That, that Jesus is now here with Moses and Elijah who weren't there before. So what's going on here? So, he, so when we look at verse 5, we have to, have to understand that he's saying this out of fear, out of a misunderstanding of what's going on. And so perhaps in verse 5, he's wanting to set up these three tabernacles, these three dwelling places, in order to prolong the experience. So that these two great figures of the Old Testament could remain permanent so that these two men, Moses and Elijah, along with Jesus, could stay here and, and the kingdom now could come. Because you remember, you have to understand that the disciples still thought that the kingdom was coming now. That while Jesus was on earth, it was going to come. So why don't we set up these three tabernacles and you guys can all bring in the kingdom, usher in the kingdom. So perhaps that's the reason. Perhaps Peter's trying to figure out why Christ brought them there. Okay, Jesus never told them why they went up into the mountains, so maybe Jesus brought them there to do something. Maybe He needed their help. So they say, why don't we make these tabernacles for you? We've got some strong arms. We'll take care of you. 
in that way. We don't know exactly why Peter said this, but we really shouldn't give a whole lot of thought to it because Mark tells us that it was done out of fear. The main thing that we need to see is that Peter's statement reflects his failure to understand who Christ was. You see, he was putting Jesus on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. He's saying these three people are pretty much the same. Let's make a tabernacle for each one of you. But uh, but God didn't see things that way, did He? God saw Jesus as something different than Moses and Elijah. Notice verse 7 and 8. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Jesus is glorious. He is great. Jesus is superior to the prophets. But here in verses 7 and 8, we see that Jesus is God's Son. God comes down in a cloud in verse 7. Luke 9.34 tells us that the cloud came while Peter was still speaking that this cloud came and enveloped them. And these people entered the cloud in a way. Now, why would God come in a cloud? Why wouldn't God come in a different way? We have to remember that that God is spirit. That God uh, cannot be confined to one object. So, He is spirit. He has no physical body like we do. So, whenever He reveals Himself, He does it in different ways. You remember uh, in the Old Testament, it was the Shekinah glory. It was the pillar of cloud. It was the, the pillar of fire by night. He revealed Himself in the, in the burning bush and other, in other ways. Here, He does it in a cloud. And notice, He speaks. He is the God who is there and He is the God who speaks. At the end of the verse, He says, This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 11. We'll see another time in which God speaks. One of very few times where God speaks, God the Father speaks. Chapter 1. And let's begin reading with verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So, in chapter 1, we have a similar phrase that we have in chapter 9 to what we have in chapter 9. Both of them begin with, This is my beloved Son. In chapter 1, he says, I am well pleased with Him. I am well pleased with you. He's speaking directly to Jesus. Here, in chapter 9, he's speaking to the disciples. He's saying, This. This, here, Jesus, He is my beloved Son. Instead of saying, I am well pleased in Him, He says, listen to Him. He's talking to the disciples. It shows that Jesus is greater than these other two men, Moses and Elijah. And we we see that verified in verse 8, when everybody goes away. When Moses and Elijah are now gone, and now it's just Jesus alone with the three three disciples. So God is saying the the law and the prophets are important, 
They're very important to, to how I have spoken before. But now, disciples, I am speaking to you through My Son. I am speaking to you through Jesus of Nazareth. This man. The, the ministries of Moses and Elijah are now, are now over. They spoke the message of God in their day through the Law and the Prophets, but now it was Jesus who was going to be the representative of God. And so God commands them to listen to Him. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Because what we find in Scripture is that we ought to do the same thing. That we ought to listen to Jesus as well. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power, when he, had made, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Hebrews is a book that lays out for us that Jesus is greater than all others. That, that there is a supremacy to Jesus. He's better than the prophets. That's what verse 1 tells us. That God has spoke to us in many ways. In the past, He's, he's talked to us in many ways. And through many people. But now in these last days, He speaks through His Son. Jesus, verse 2 tells us. Because He is the One who made the world. And notice verse 3. It goes along with our passage that He is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of God's nature. If you want to see who God is, you look at Jesus Christ. You want to see what, what God thinks, look to Jesus Christ. What does Jesus think? What does Jesus say? This is who we are to listen to. He is our authority. And so God, God reveals for the disciples in Mark chapter 9 that that Jesus is greater than the prophets. That Jesus is glorious, yes. That that Jesus is uh, the Son of that Jesus is superior to the prophets, yes. And then thirdly, that Jesus is God's Son. Verse nine, we see that Jesus will rise from the dead. Mark nine, verse nine. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. We know from Mark chapter 8, Jesus has already told them that yes, I will die, that is true, but I will rise from the dead. I will not stay dead. And so He commands these guys, these three men, to be silent. He didn't want them to propagate this misunderstanding of this messianic mission that, that hey, I'm coming now. That this... this uh, kingdom is going to start now. could have been that he didn't want to create some sort of popular movement where, where Jesus becomes this big freedom fighter and, and as a result, it blocks his way to the cross where he had to go. 
where Jesus had to die in order to pay for our sins. But Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, the implication from verse 9, he says, don't say anything about this until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Until after. So the implication there is that they should talk about it, but just not now. Talk about it after I rise from the dead. After I die and I come back uh, to life from the grave, then you talk about it. Figure out what it means. And so the disciples certainly must have killed them to have to hold this secret in, even coming back down to the disciples, uh, that Jesus is, is this glorious man, that He is God's Son, greater than the prophets before Him. And then in verses 10-13, through 13, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant of the Old Testament. He is the one who the Old Testament prophesied would suffer. Verse 10, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked Him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And He said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So the disciples are still confused. Even after seeing God's glory through Jesus Christ emanate from His person, they're still confused. They expected, uh, surely they expected a resurrection of all mankind. They understood that. But how could Jesus' death and resurrection be imminent? They thought, well, if you're going to die, the resurrection that you're talking about is still going to be a long way away when everybody is raised from the dead. That's what you're talking about, right, Jesus? But Jesus was trying to explain to them that it's different than what they expected. In fact, He was the suffering servant that the Old Testament had prophesied about. That's why Jesus comes back to them in verse 12 and says, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus corrects them. They said, well, if we saw Elijah, you see the scribes, all these great men of of Scripture that that know the Scripture in their day, the scribes, that's who they would go to to understand what the Old Testament meant. And and they're saying, these, these scholars are saying that Elijah was supposed to come first before the kingdom. And now, Jesus, we have come to the mountain and we have seen Elijah. We've seen him. So he's come. So now that means you must be you must be ushering in the kingdom, right? And Jesus says, yes, that's true. Elijah is supposed to come first before I come. But it also says that, that I'm supposed to be a suffering servant. How do you, how do you work those two together? So he's, he's, he's questioning or helping the disciples see better what is going on here. And Jesus says, you know what? Elijah did come first but he was rejected. He was persecuted. He suffered and died. And that Elijah was not the Elijah of the Old Testament that the disciples were thinking about. It was John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist, this man who came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. He was a man who came and prophesied about what would happen, about this, this, coming, man, this coming servant, this coming king. 
and that he should be accepted. But you know what? They, they rejected John the Baptist, this Elijah that was promised in the Old Testament. And because they rejected him, they've also rejected me. And so what's going to have to happen, disciples, is that another Elijah is going to have to come. Another person who comes in the spirit of, and power of Elijah and prophesies about my coming. And that's going to happen during the tribulation. During the seven years that Elijah will come and prophesy and talk about Jesus uh, coming. Because this, this Elijah that had come. You see, the disciples understood now. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17. They, they understood a little bit more of what's happening. And the reason I say that this Elijah was John the Baptist is because Matthew tells us that the disciples now understood who Jesus was talking about. In Matthew chapter 17, we have a record of the same event that we're reading about in Mark chapter 9. Matthew 17, and notice the questioning beginning in verse 10 that we were just looking at in Mark 9. Mark 17, or I'm sorry, Matthew 17, verse 10. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then notice verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to him to them about John the Baptist. See, Jesus is saying, yes, an Elijah is coming. There is an Elijah coming before I usher in the kingdom. But there was also Elijah, an Elijah who already had come. And if they would have accepted me, if they would have accepted me as their Messiah, the Jews, if they would have accepted me, then we would have entered into the kingdom. But because they rejected God's servant, John the Baptist, that previous Elijah, then, that, then I was going to have to suffer and die as well. So, a summary of this passage in Mark chapter 9 is basically what Jesus is doing is giving them a glimpse of the coming kingdom that we have now here at the top of the mountain a glorified Christ, a Christ in His actual glory as a central figure just like it will be in the kingdom. And then we have glorified saints there, Moses and Elijah, just like will take place in the kingdom. And then we have Jews still on the earth, but enjoying the kingdom. Now let me ask you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's significant that the glory of Christ is being revealed to the disciples. But... In a sense, we share some of that glory. That God is making us uh, like Jesus Christ. He's helping to reveal in us His greatness through us who are believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, justice from the Lord, the Spirit. <clears throat> that word in chapter 9, verse 3, transfigured, 
is the same word here in chapter 3, verse 18 that's translated transformed. So we could say, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transfigured into the same image from glory to glory. In this verse here, Paul is talking about believers. He's talking about what happens to believers when they come to Christ. That God does a work in them a work, a, a metamorphosis, a transformation, a transfiguration in them to reveal more and more of the glory that is within. Now, it's not saying that we are God, that we are like Jesus in that way, but, but there is a sense in which we share some of God's glory when God changes us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And there will come a day when we are fully transformed, like that butterfly like Jesus, like Jesus Christ in the kingdom, when everybody will recognize Him and us for who we really are. We are people who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is the transformation that is happening in everyone who is a believer. He does this transformation, verse 18 tells us, through looking in a mirror. That is, by looking into the mirror of the Word of God. When we reflect on God in His Word and we see ourselves and the sin that we have, this transformation happens. It takes place. And it becomes a bright light to all who are around us. And the result is that people see our good works, our fruit of the Spirit, our growth in godliness, our connection with God Himself, and they glorify not us. They don't give the praise to us, but they give praise to God. They say, what a great God that person must serve. That is the natural response of people who look at, at those who are being changed. And this is happening in every believer's lives. Every believer's life. This metamorphosis that is taking place in your life is happening through the power of God as He changes you through the Word. And that is why we spend so much time looking into the Word at this church and why we spend time away from this church when we're alone in the Word of God because that's the only way that we can be changed to be more like Jesus Christ. Do you see? And uh, a truth that I want you to be able to take away from this passage is this. No one is greater than Jesus Christ. No one is greater. Perhaps the biggest duh statement of the day. But I'm trying to make the point that Jesus is the greatest, that no other human leader can be exalted to the level of Jesus Christ like the disciples were doing with Moses and Elijah. Hey, we could make a tabernacle for all three of you guys. All three of you guys are great. But no one can be exalted to the greatness of Jesus Christ. So when we come across a, a great religious leader, a person who, who is very savvy with the Scriptures, a, a person who helps us to see the Scriptures rightly and helps to, our hearts to be convicted, we should not exalt them, but, but we should exalt their Savior. They, we should exalt Jesus Christ, who is the one who is working through them. There have been and there always will be many religious leaders who are commendable people to follow. And in our day of pluralism and relativism, it's easy to put 
Jesus up on the same pedestal as all these other religious leaders. But Jesus accepts no rivals. There's only one person of whom it can be said that He is the Lord of glory. That He created all things and that He came and became one of us so that He could die for us. So that He could suffer humiliation and shame on a detestable cross so that He could be exalted like He is now in the majesty on high, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, returning to the glory that He shared with His Father since the world began, since before the world began. So when you're tempted to see a person in their greatness, you must recognize that all praise does not belong to that person, even if they're directing you to God. That The praise belongs to God because no one is greater than Jesus Christ. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that You have used Your Word to help us see a better uh, picture of who Jesus Christ is. That He is the exact representation of Your greatness, of Your nature. And often we wonder what it is that that You want and what it is that You are like. And according to Your Word, the best way that we can find that out is by looking to Jesus Christ. And so we pray that You would help us to reflect uh, that greatness in our lives by being changed through the power of Your Word. We ask that You would help to shape and mold our minds and our actions so that we would be proper representations of Your greatness. That we would not be complacent or lazy with regard to our spiritual life, but that we would be actively involved in in seeking out what You would have us to do in Your Word. And being connected with a local church where we can... um, where we can interact with other believers who are struggling with sin as well and be able to be held accountable to them and they to us so that we can work together to display Your glory. Because You are so great, You deserve to be seen by all people. And so our mission is to spread Your greatness to the people around us. And that begins by each of us being able to see Your greatness for ourselves. Because we can't honestly and ethically relay something that we haven't seen for ourselves. So we pray that You would help us to grow in grace in this way. That You would shed upon us uh, the light that we need to understand and to apply these truths. We pray it in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me ask you.